On February 17, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted a conversation with Martha Biondi, chair of the Department of African American Studies at Northwestern University. The discussion, titled Black Politics and Gun Violence, ran as part of the Ash Center's Race and American Politics Seminar Series. Hosted by Leah Rigur, assistant professor at the Harvard Kennedy School, the discussion explored Biondi's research on how gun control and gun violence intersect with race politics in the United States. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. Thank you all for coming out today on what has been an unexpectedly busy day for uh, Harvard's campus. There seems like there are a million things going on, um, but none as exciting as the one you're about to see. <laughs> And of course, I'm a little biased. So welcome and, and welcome back uh, to the Race in American Politics uh, series. Um, just before we get started, um, I do want to thank the Ash Center and the Wiener Center and the Hutchins Center uh, for co-sponsoring this event and for co-sponsoring the series. Um, I'm Leah wright Rigur, and I'm an assistant professor of public policy here at the Kennedy School. Um, and I have the great pleasure of introducing Martha Biondi today, who has joined us from the windy city of Chicago. Um, so, so I, I just want to say, before I get into the quick introduction, that I think it's a real pleasure and it's a real treat um, for us to have uh, Professor Biondi here today. Um, in addition to talking about um, black politics and gun violence, um, in neoliberalism, I also do want to point out that uh, 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 Professor Biondi is an expert on black protests on college campuses. So that is extremely relevant right now, and I'm sure if you ask her, she'll have a lot to say about that. Um, but I think we're really fortunate to have her here on campus today, and I'm really looking forward uh, both to her talk and the Q&A. So uh, Professor Biondi is a member of the Department of African American Studies uh, with a joint appointment in the History Department at Northwestern University. She specializes in 20th century African American history and is the author of To Stand and Fight, The Struggle for Civil Rights in Post-War New York City, uh, published by Harvard University Press. Um, it was awarded several prizes, including the Thomas J. Wilson Prize as the fir best first book of the year. Um, Professor Biondi also published in 2012 uh, a really instrumental book, uh, The Black Revolution on Campus, an account of the nationwide black student movement of the late 1960s and early uh, black studies movement of the 1970s. She's currently researching a book on neoliberalism, violence, and black life, focusing on Chicago since the 1980s. Uh, she received her BA from Barnard College and an MA and PhD from Columbia University. So if we could please give a warm welcome to Professor Biondi. Well, thank you, everyone. I'm delighted to be here, and I want to thank everybody who made this visit possible, um, including Professor wright Rigor for inviting me, and for Melissa and everybody at the Ash Center for making all of the arrangements. And thank you all for coming, and I look forward to your comments and questions um, after my talk. And I just want to emphasize as well that this is very much a work in progress. So my talk today explores black perspectives on gun control and gun violence since the late 1960s. I'm going to chart perspectives from the era of black liberation to the age of crack, deindustrialization, structural unemployment, and escalating gun deaths. My research asks, how have African American leaders, elected officials, clergy, journalists, and community activists responded to high rates of gun violence and mortality in black communities? And what have they advocated as avenues of change? Today I'll share one piece of this research that pertains to the various black perspectives on gun control, 
or gun regulation. I'm not going to spend much time talking about the literature on gun control, but to suffice it to say, this literature strikingly omits black voices or perspectives. Even when African Americans are acknowledged as the victims of gun violence, the focus of many studies is a predominantly white gun control lobby and the white-dominated gun rights lobby. Moreover, the African American history or black studies scholarship has explored how the war on drugs and rising crime rates in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s resulted in prison expansion and the rise of the carceral state. Many scholars have examined how global economic restructuring and rise of neoliberalism replaced the social welfare state with a punitive state. Disposable or expendable populations are the incarcerated and those pushed out of the formal economy. My work operates in the same vein but tries to understand the toll of gun homicide as a social question as well. Before I begin discussing the response to gun violence, I want to give a sense of the scope and scale of the phenomena. Guns kill 32,000 Americans a year and injure another 100,000. Handguns have killed more Americans in just the last 48 years than have died in all US wars combined. And these victims are disproportionately black. The 1980s were key years of rising mortality. From 1984 to 1987, the homicide rate for African-American men aged 15 to 24 rose 66%. In 1991, the CDC projected that one out of 21 African-American boys or men would be killed by a gun. Between 1986 and 1988, just two years, gunshot wounds among children living in cities grew by 300%. Indeed, between 1979 and 1991, almost 50,000 American children were killed by guns and thousands more were injured. In one year alone, 1986, 365 children were shot in Detroit, 43 of them fatally. Violence, of course, marks the nation's founding. Armed militias stole land from Native Americans and put down rebellions by enslaved Africans. The constitutional sanction of deploying armed white men against blacks and Native Americans is the origin of what has come, come to be known as America's gun culture. And it explains why that culture remained most deeply rooted in white, rural, and small town America long after the end of slavery and the close of the frontier. The proliferation of stand your ground laws and higher gun ownership rates in white rural communities illustrates the continuing salience of this culture. Yet some communities bear the burden of gun violence disproportionately, just like some communities bear the burden of incarceration disproportionately. Homicide is the leading cause of death for, for black males aged 15 to 34. The shooting deaths of young black people have skyrocketed since the 1980s, revealing a distinct form of racism in the post-industrial city. Chicago gets a lot of media attention for gun violence, but its story is not unique. Philadelphia had the highest murder rate during the last decade. According to a 2006 study, an African-American young man in just North Philadelphia had a better chance of dying from violence than did a US soldier in Iraq. How should we view this large scale yet very concentrated loss of life? Researchers at the University of Chicago have chillingly termed it depopulation. Some call it modern day racism. Scholar activist Ruth Gilmore defines racism as, quote, the state-sanctioned or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerabilities to premature death. Nonetheless, 
It has been difficult for many people to see high homicide rates as a phenomena that's socially produced. Black-on-black -black crime has been the more prevalent label attached to this massive loss of life. One reaction to high rates of gun homicide and suicide has been a call to regulate the production and sale of handguns. Clear majorities support what's come to be called common sense gun regulation. 80% of African Americans, like large majorities of all Americans, favor universal background checks for all gun sales. But one question I want to ask is why support for gun control, consistent over many years, has not translated into a social movement among African Americans for gun control. Part of the answer has been the role of guns in racial self-defense, from the aftermath of slavery through the black freedom struggle. An ethic of armed self-defense against white racist vigilantes marked Southern black culture after the Civil War and continued through the era of lynching. Advocacy of armed self-defense reemerged in the Southern Civil Rights Movement as groups such as the Deacons for Defense provided protection to nonviolent protesters. And Martin Luther King himself, the apostle of nonviolence, considered carrying a gun after numerous death threats and attacks to his home. Leaders such as North Carolina's Robert F. Williams boldly advocated armed self-defense against the Klan and other racist assailants. This tradition found expression in the North in the 1960s and 1970s, most famously by Malcolm X and in the street patrols of the Black Panther Party. However, the rise of militant black resistance in this era unleashed government reprisals, lethal crackdowns, and a political backlash. Passage of gun laws was part of this. In the late 1960s, Congress and numerous states passed gun control laws, and race and racism were not far from the surface. In California, Governor Ronald Reagan responded to the Black Panthers' armed police patrols by endorsing laws to restrict people from having lo loaded guns in public. In 1967, after Newark and Detroit exploded in the largest black uprisings in American history, a federal report put part of the blame for damages on the easy availability of guns in urban neighborhoods. The next year, Washington passed the first federal gun control law in decades. Among other things, the Gun Control Act of 1968 tried to restrict so-called Saturday night specials, the cheap, easily um, available guns often used by urban youth. Interestingly, the National Rifle Association, which today portrays itself as the mortal opponent to gun regulation, supported the gun control law. This led one critic to remark that the Gun Control Act was, quote, passed not to control guns, but to control blacks. At the same time, however, homicide and other violent crime rates were rising in urban America, especially in black neighborhoods, and African Americans found themselves increasingly torn between supporting gun rights for racial self-defense and supporting gun restrictions as an anti-crime measure. A survey of black Chicago leaders in the 1970s reveals this period of flux. A majority called for tougher treatment of lawbreakers who use guns in committing crimes. 67% said the courts do not deal harshly enough with persons who use guns in crime. A staggering 50% had personally been threatened by a gun. 35% said the perpetrator was white, and a fifth of this group said that white person was a police officer. 
finally, 68% supported the right of citizens to own firearms. In 1968, Chicago passed a gun registration ordinance. Three aldermen opposed it, including African-American alderman Sammy Rayner, who called it, quote, a conspiracy to contain the black community. The law, he said, would strengthen the position of the authorities if they knew the whereabouts of all guns controlled by black people. This con concern echoes the findings of an opinion poll in which 45% of black respondents viewed gun registration as, quote, the first step to gun confiscation. Chicago activist Russ Meeks denounced the law as, quote, an excuse for white people to keep the Negro suppressed. The gun control ordinance is nothing more than a smokescreen, he said, to cover the real crime in the streets, the Klan-like nature of the police, and the failure of the city's administration to address itself to the real problems in Chicago. Meeks said the goal of the law was to hinder the black community in fighting for civil rights. This era was the high tide of the black liberation movement. Members of the Black Panther Party directly challenged police racism in black communities, leading the federal government and police to launch a covert attack on the organization, which culminated in the police murder of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark in Chicago in 1969. A year later, after two police officers were killed, Mayor Daley called for further gun control, singling out groups, quote, which label policemen as brutes and pigs, a clear reference to the Panthers. Alderman Rayner again spoke out, but this time he called for universal disarmament, saying guns were bad for everyone, the police and the people. Guns are bad no matter who has them, he said. They should be stricken from society so that not only citizens, but police should be disarmed as well. The, Ch the Chicago Metro News, a black newspaper that ran in the 1970s and 1980s, featured a column called The Hot Skillet, written by The Axeman, and another column called Definitions and Contradictions, written by longtime community activist Chuck Harris, known as the warrior of the West Side. Both columns frequently weighed the pros and cons of gun regulation. When the suburb of Morton Grove, Illinois, and this is a famous law, passed a law banning the sale and possessions of handguns, it was hailed as a national model. But in a column called Blacks Oppose Handgun Control, the Axeman criticized a similar proposal in Chicago. Three black aldermen voiced opposition, denouncing the ordinance as dangerous to the black community. Only a few years removed from the night riding terror of the Ku Klux Klan, the Axeman wrote, many blacks are gripped by a suspicion that the law is really aimed at disarming the black community, and that once blacks relinquish their weapons, they will be sitting ducks for the criminals around them and the racists. On the other hand, the Axeman wrote, one cannot overlook the immediacy of black-on-black -black crime, which makes, which makes the matter of gun control in the black community, he said, an excruciatingly complex one. Yet the Axeman always concluded in favor of gun ownership. In a column in the early 1980s entitled, Is Gun Control Black Control?, the Axeman again engaged the question. Caught between the racists and criminals in our midst, he said, made it a tough choice. But he concluded with an unequivocal rejection of gun control laws. An editorial in the Chicago Metro News in the late 1970s 
reacted to rising murder rates and the circulation of the term black-on-black -black crime. Black-on-black -black crime can best be described as suicide, the editorial began. Regardless of such motives as anxiety, frustration, unemployment, and madness, the results are all the same. One more black person off the scene. Black-on-black -black crime is a form of population control with political implications, it declared. Who profits from such acts of aggression, the editorial asked. The answer? Right off, the morticians, the hospitals, and the weapon manufacturers. But on a more subtle level, the system benefits. For many blacks are potential welfare recipients, unemployment compensation receivers, and beneficiaries of other forms of government subsidy. Black-on-black -black crime, the editorial continued, is political because the motives are a product of a social system that does not provide minorities with economic and political security. Insecurity breeds jealousy, discontent, and a sense of inferiority. This accounts for the misplaced aggression currently taking place among black people. Tragically, the paper's publisher, Charles Armstrong, was fatally shot in the office of the Chicago Metro News by a gunman in 1985. As the black liberation movement declined, and unemployment and urban disinvestment rose in the 1970s and 1980s, homicide rates of young black men in particular rose sharply. They hit a peak in 1980 and then again in the early 1990s. As a result, black leadership sentiment tended to move more decisively in favor of gun regulation. While the NRA's previous hostility to guns in black hands began to fade. In 1987, Congress repealed many aspects of the 1968 gun control law, leading to more commerce and handguns across state lines. The NRA had used its influence in Congress to restrict the government's ability to trace illegal guns. According to African-American leader Ben Chavis, this law helped make guns involved in crimes, quote, untraceable. Why, he wondered, was the NRA able to repeal major gun control restrictions which have been in effect for almost 20 years, and restrictions which the NRA had previously supported? And ever since this, this, uh, re this uh, uh, revision in, in uh, 1987, the NRA has continued to fight against restrictions on lawful gun, owner, lawful gun ownership and to block measures seeking to thwart the commerce of illegal guns. In 1993, most African-American members of Congress supported the Brady Bill, which required background checks for all gun purchases from licensed dealers. Noting this new consensus, a civil rights leader remarked, this is the first time that significant forces in the African-American community have joined together to speak out on gun control. But as things went, some state and local gun control measures ended up adding to the rise of mass incarceration. Instead of punishing the gun suppliers or manufacturers or closing gun shows, these laws or policies more often added sentencing enhancements for people found to unlawfully possess guns. This approach divided social justice advocates who tended to oppose a penal response 
from many elected officials, including black elected officials, who tended to respond to crises with a readily available criminal justice system. Indeed, many African-American community-based activists have sought to stop the trafficking of guns made and sold across county and state lines in contrast to this punitive approach to gun control. This was a long-standing focus of Rainbow Push. Reverend Jesse Jackson has led many marches to gun shops across county and city, uh, state lines, especially in Indiana. According to him, 1% of gun dealers supply 57% of Chicago handguns. For Jackson and others, the culprits are the suppliers and manufacturers. As he puts it, corporate profits for black bodies. Jobs go out, guns come in, is a common refrain at Rainbow Push headquarters. In 1999, the NAACP filed a class action lawsuit against gun distributors and makers in federal court, but to no avail. This lawsuit and others like it argued that the gun industry's negligence in marketing and distribution allowed weapons to flow illegally to states with strict anti-gun laws. But these lawsuits went down to defeat. And then the gun industry used their influence with politicians to pass measures shielding themselves from further litigation. Community organizations, many of which are led by African-American women, have also stressed non-carceral solutions to gun violence. One of the best known, known of these is in Detroit. By the 1980s, Detroit was reeling. It had lost tens of thousands of well-paying manufacturing jobs, and its tax base was slipping away. It also had an unprecedented murder rate, earning it the moniker Murder Capital USA. Although as my, in my research, I found that many cities give themselves that label. As an historian put it, in the mid-1980s, the black youth population was declaring war on itself as the larger black community looked on helplessly. One Detroit mother lost a son in that war, and after her second son was shot, she committed herself to fight for peace in her community. Clementine Barfield founded the organization Save Our Sons and Daughters, known as So Sad a violence prevention and peace building organization that helps survivors of homicide and people and communities traumatized by it. Barfield told Ebony Magazine, children today have seen violence all their lives. When we talked to elementary school children, we found that 80 to 85% of them personally know someone who has been killed. The majority, believe it or not, have had a grandparent killed. If your reality is that you could die any day, then why is killing someone so far-fetched? Many activists on the left have not focused on the issue of guns or gun violence, and I'll say more about this in a few moments. But James and Grace Lee Boggs in Detroit are notable exceptions. Legendary Detroit activists who worked with everyone from A. Philip Randolph to the League of Revolutionary Black Workers the Boggses were still on the ground organizing in Detroit in the 1980s and 90s, a time when the black left had declined and inner city communities were in crisis. So Sad became a vital point of organizing, relevance, and community contact for the couple. They helped organize Detroit Summer, a program named after the famous Freedom Summer of the Civil Rights Movement with the goal of cultivating youth leaders and fostering a new consciousness. Many poor and struggling black communities 
the ones enduring the brunt of this violence, have broken with the conventional crime-fighting response of politicians. They do not see that as a solution. The Newark, New Jersey Anti-Violence Coalition, for example, has a five-point plan calling for job creation, black and Latino history for youth, plans to promote peaceful resolution of disputes among gangs, an end to police brutality, and a demand that city officials declare violence a public health emergency. Their goal is to repair and strengthen urban working class black communities, not to criminalize them. There are currently many grassroots anti-violence initiatives in American cities, including Chicago. Many are youth-oriented, faith-based, or led by family survivors of gun violence. But as I have alluded, the US left, including the black left, has not particularly focused on gun control and high rates of black people's death due to homicide. Many on the left, and in the social justice community more broadly, fear that gun control laws could have a penal result and lead to greater imprisonment of black and brown people. Also of concern is the sense that calling for gun control evades the structural oppression that produces gun violence in poor black and brown neighborhoods in the first place. That perhaps is why progressive or left-leaning anti-racist organizing has never particularly focused on gun control, but has focused instead on demilitarizing the police and investing in jobs, housing, and schools for those communities most devastated by poverty and abandonment. But what about the black radical or black nationalist advocacy of the necessity and right of armed self-defense in a racist society? What is its legacy today or in the more recent, more recent time? Angela Davis, a longtime radical activist, former member of the Black Panther Party, was arrested and tried 50 years ago because her legally purchased gun was used in a brazen courthouse shooting. But in Davis's view, the role of guns has shifted from being a means to defend black life and black liberation to being a source of serious harm. In a speech in Chicago two years ago, she reminded the audience that the original name of the Black Panthers was the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. My dad kept guns in the house, she said, because the Ku Klux Klan bombed so many houses in her Birmingham neighborhood, it was known as Dynamite Hill. We were challenging the idea that racist and state violence could prevent us from achieving equality. There was a political context for our position, Davis said, emphasizing that gun violence was not then the leading cause of black men's deaths as it is today. However, some advocates in the black nationalist tradition still stress the importance of gun rights to combat the potential threat of racist assaults. One such group, well, it might just be a website more than an organization, but um, this is actually run by the brother of a prominent historian. Uh, one such group has an interesting name. Blending together the NAACP and the NRA, which I should point out, the NRA likes to call itself lately the, the nation's oldest civil rights organization. So blending together the NAACP and the NRA, this group is called the National Rifle Association for the Advancement of Colored People, <laughs> the NRAACP. <laughs> it's a website. It has a very interesting manifesto. If you're interested in this, it's very check it out. 
Its website declares that as long as colored people do not feel safe in their neighborhoods, either ignored or threatened by authorities, all possibilities for self-defense, self-determination must remain open. And as long as, there, as there, there is an armed white supremacist faction within US borders, there must remain the ability for the colored populations of America to defend themselves. But not every black nationalist has remained a champion of gun rights. Many have turned toward community-based organizing against gun violence and focus on, focus on cultural revitalization or strengthening family ties as the solution. For example, activist Bancole Thompson of Detroit writes, while unjustified police shootings are unacceptable and must be condemned, we cannot ignore the sad reality of our conspicuous silence on what our young black men and women are doing to each other. This is not how we should live our lives, afraid of each other. All black lives should matter, whether they are victims of police shootings or victims of killings by other blacks, he asserts. Malik Shabazz, director of the Marcus Garvey movement, New Black Panther Nation in Detroit, has a long history of, fight, of fighting drugs and violence. What is happening in our community is deep, he said, in response to a rash of homicides. We need to love each other as black people. We have to be taught love from the womb to the tomb. The black men who are engaged in these crimes are totally disconnected. They need to see role models. They need to see that black men go to work, Shabazz said. He added that women could help, but you need a man to talk to a man. That is why we need black fathers in these homes. Interestingly, vocal advocacy for gun rights in the contemporary era tends to come from an unusual alliance between black conservatives, the National Rifle Association, and black homeowners living in high crime neighborhoods. Their advocacy tends to be grounded in the right to defend oneself, one's home, and one's family from an armed assailant. Showing their desire to court a black constituency, the NRA has even adopted the black nationalist idea that gun control is racist. And actually, they should know this. The NRA was intimately involved in promoting gun laws for precisely that reason. In 1968, their flagship magazine, The American Rifleman, took credit for passage of the federal gun control law and praised it. But now the NRA sees African Americans as a potential market, as, a, as potential buyers of lawfully owned guns, motivated by fears of crime rather than a desire for political revolution. A vivid illustration of this new approach took place a couple of years ago at a movie theater on the south side of Chicago. The NRA held an event to cultivate support for a pending conceal and carry law in Illinois, which has subsequently passed. The framing of the event was steeped in 1960s black nationalism, and the crowd of hundreds of people was filled with veterans of those struggles alongside middle-aged and elderly homeowners from neighborhoods with high crime rates. They screened a documentary called Negroes with Guns, named after the autobiography written by the legendary leader Robert F. Williams, which narrates his triumphal stand against the Klan and racist police officers in North Carolina in the Civil Rights era. And then the NRA showed a short anti-gun control movie called No Guns for Negroes. When the lights went up, the very first thing that Cliff Kelly, a popular host of a black talk radio show, emphasized 
was that guns today should not be used against the police. No, no, he declared. Police were not the enemy of law-abiding black residents. Gangbangers were the problem, he stressed. And they were taking over previously safe and peaceful communities. All in all, the event was a remarkable appropriation of black nationalist 1960s imagery to market guns to an aging black audience fearful of crime. And new NRA marketing is an important recent concern. The gun industry is searching for new markets as the number of Americans owning handguns has declined. Gun ownership tends to be more and more concentrated among a smaller number of people who now tend to buy more, more than one weapon. So they tend to stockpile a smaller group. I mentioned earlier that the majority of African Americans, like the majority of Americans, support many forms of gun regulation, but that this support was unlikely to translate into a social movement against guns. The faith-based community and a variety of anti-violence youth groups do sometimes take to the streets and protest over guns. But most grassroots organizers working on the ground in poor black communities have directed their energies toward finding more comprehensive analyses and solutions. They've channeled the community's pain into efforts to preserve and build schools, mental health clinics, jobs, parks, and youth programs. Moreover, these activists see the fight against gun violence as inextricably linked to the fight against police abuse and mass incarceration. The Black Lives Matter movement reflects this comprehensive approach to social justice. Many of its youth activists either got their start in anti-violence organizing or experienced childhoods where neighborhood violence and disarray informed their political outlooks. One example is 20-year-old Jamal Green, who last summer worked for Mayor Rahm Emanuel's Put the Guns Down Violence Prevention Initiative, but who's more recently taken up the fight against police violence. After the release of the video showing the police killing of Laquan McDonald, Jamal Green uh, made Rom Failed Us t-shirts and has led protests in front of the mayor's house. Quote, we live in communities with absolutely nothing, said Green, who lives on the south side. These are not excuses, but these are definitely reasons attached to the high crime rates and why people aren't working and why people don't have anything to do or anywhere to go. The Black Youth Project is a nationwide group organizing against police violence, and for health care, education, and living wages. Several of its Chicago leaders describe coming of age amidst high rates of gun violence as part of the systemic racism that has marked their communities and delimited their life chances. Charles Preston got his start as an activist in a third grade anti-violence march after Chicago teen Blair Holt was killed on a CTA bus. This was a famous case in Chicago. He said his neighborhood is devastated by home closures and school close, home foreclosures and school closings. He is now an activist with the Black Youth Project. Veronica Morris Moore is an organizer with FLY, or Fearless Leading by Youth. She grew up around violence, gangs, and drugs. Friends were being killed, and school didn't provide any answers. The death of a young person in her community sparked a fight for a trauma center, and she got involved. Quote, after high school, I decided to fight white supremacy, she said. So for this young woman, gun violence in the community was inextricably connected to wider disinvestment, poor schools, and inadequate health care. For all these youth, gun violence was symptomatic of societal indifference to their lives. It embodied how racism functioned 
in their communities in the day-to-day. And I should add that that group that FLY was part of fighting for a trauma center in the University of Chicago neighborhood, they recently won. That was a several-year fight for a trauma center after a young man died as a result of uh, gun violence. And uh, the, the ambulance drive to a hospital um, was very far because it wasn't a nearby trauma center in the south side, a neighborhood with very, very high homicide, right? They had no trauma center in the hospital. So that was a big fight um, that they, in fact, recently won. In conclusion, guns are bound up with the history of racial oppression in the United States. But so many discussions of gun culture and gun regulation ignore or marginalize race and racism. We might consider asking how race fuels both legal and illegal gun sales, and we might ask if the high death rate of young black and brown men from gun violence constitutes an aspect of racial subjection. Americans are beginning to view mass incarceration as a form of social control imposed on an expendable or disposable population. I want to suggest that we should view homicide in a similar fashion. It's, of course, bound up with the story of mass incarceration. If we approach gun violence this way, rather than simply as crime or inner city black pathology, it frees us to imagine more robust and meaningful visions of peace, rebuilding, and hopefully social justice. Thank you. So thank you so much for that, Martha. Um, I, have a, I have a lot of comments, but I'll, I'm actually going to turn it over, um, given what time it is, I'm going to turn it over to the audience and open it up to Q&A. Um, so we have, a, we have a microphone, and we ask that you please speak into the microphone just so that it comes out clear, um, because this will be turned into a podcast that will be available online. So questions? I should, I should um, add, too, that, um, again, I mentioned this is a work in progress, but I have um, <coughs> recently gave a version of this talk um, at a maximum security prison in Illinois at the Stateville Correctional Facility um, to an audience, basically, of people in for mostly natural life sentences. So for, I mean, people who really of whom I was studying and you know, writing about, um, they were mostly from the south and west sides of Chicago. That was interesting. Jenny. Oh, wait. Do you think that the um, Black Lives Matter and other groups will pick up um, this uh, flag, the flag, uh, and go forward? Um, the reason I would not do it um, is that, uh, realistically speaking, um, the NRA is very, very powerful. And you might want to sort of, and the idea of getting laws against uh, selling guns across state lines and so forth, which I think is more than sensible. Um, it's required and, and we desperately need it. Um, it may not be an easy win. Um, and so you, you might want to be kind of aiming at something that's a little easier because you know there's quite a lot of public feeling against police violence at, at the moment, and there are new technologies such as videotapes on, uh, I mean, video cameras on on uh, police um, helmets and so forth. There there are ways that you can see going forward where there's quite a lot of public support. Of course, there's a lot of public support for control of guns too, but it seems to be politically impossible. 
Um, yeah, thank you very much. And I in no way wanted to suggest <laughs> that I think the Black Lives Matter movement should shift its political energies or attention away from police violence at all, uh, far, far from that. Um, I, I really wanted to just sort of point to the fact that many activists came of age, their political formation in some ways is in urban neighborhoods where this is an aspect, I think, of, of, of an experience of abandonment and disinvestment um, that's helped forge their, their anger and their critique of, of, of the conditions that they've um, grown up in. So I think it's been a politicizing environment, and I think it's, it's um, shaped them, um, which is why I included it in the talk. But I, I think you're right in that uh, um, the NRA has emerged as a formidable uh, uh, foe in many types of, of gun regulation. I think, I mean, actually Massachusetts, I think, is kind of a model in using consumer safety uh, avenues toward um, um, gun regulation. Um, they are. Um, um, in 2000, the Attorney General um, issued some regulations about um, regarding safety measures on guns that many see as a promising new way. Um, there's also all this smart gun, new technology, right, that um, uh, is supposedly going to decrease fatalities, certainly accidental gun fatalities. So I think there are ways around some of the typical gun control legislative um, measures that the NRA has successfully blocked now um, for decades. I mean, it is an interesting moment where, where you know, there's been the success of all, you know, half the states have stand your ground measures. Every state is a conceal and carry measure. So they've had been extraordinarily successful in winning all kinds of new opportunities for gun display and gun ownership as, as public opinion still remains pretty strongly in favor of um, various forms of gun restriction, even though it's divided, it's certainly on, on gun, gun ownership and um, strong support still for the right of many households to own guns. So, and of course, gun ownership has declined. It's declined sharply. Um, it's now a quarter of gun homes own a gun. It used to be 40% only like 30 years ago. So that's another reason why the NRA is really focusing on a lot of new marketing strategies. Just a quick question, um, Martha. Do you know if those, um, those what did you say, 25%, are they concentrated in certain states or certain areas? Yeah, there's a lot of, and there's a lot of, you know, to help explain why there's been a decline uh, in, in, in gun ownership across households and across the country. One is some say that the, the lack of um, a draft you know, so there used to be a more wide, you know, more demographically dispersed exposure to weaponry through armed service, and so that's shifted. There's a rise of female-headed families, and so that affects which households own guns. Um, yeah, gun ownership is, is more um, pronounced in predominantly white rural states in the West, in the, in the South. Um, so, so, yeah. Hello, I have a question, or asking if you could um, expound a bit more on the role of African-American politicians in urban areas towards um, gun control. Because I think recently I've just heard more about people looking towards African-American community like, well, you were supporting these too. It's not just this structural oppression. You wanted these um, measures that were more punitive. And so I'm wondering, has there been a change in politics? You can speak more to whether there's been a change in African-American politicians' response to these issues over time. 
That's a great question, and I'm still studying it. But from what I can see, I think there has been a slight change. Um, I think there used to be more. I mean, not only not only were African American politicians supporting gun control measures, but we're supporting, you know, Clinton, you know, Clinton, you know, crime bills. I mean, we're supporting a lot of um, very punitive measures in response to these high high rates of, of nonviolent crime. Uh, you know, recently one example of a kind of shift away from the kind of sentencing enhancements. And recently in Chicago, the city was facing an ordinance for that would have extended uh, punitive measures for juvenile gun possession, and that was defeated in the city council after a big mobilization um, um, in certain um, aldermanic districts, precisely around this question of this will just you know this will just increase juvenile sentencing, because there's also a big mobilization in Chicago to close some of the juvenile facilities. So I think that that actually worked in that, that case. It didn't defeat it for, I just tabled the ordinance, so it still could reemerge. But um, that's, that's one example. I think that politicians, though, I mean, and, and I know this better in Chicago, politicians are much more likely to support um, um, sentencing enhancements um, again, if there's a kind of spate of shootings, I think that this is a readily available um, um, solution that politicians will turn to when they're under pressure, um, to, just like they'll call for more police in the community as a result of this as well. So I think the alternative ideas, the non-punitive, non-carceral um, advocacy ideas are coming out of these grassroots organizations um, um, and from you know, other groups um, that I mentioned rather than from the elected officials. But the elected officials can be pushed. So I've seen a couple of examples where certain progressive leaders can be pushed to rethink that. I mean, particularly in this era when where a lot of elected officials, for a lot of reasons, many of them financial, are questioning this whole period of prison expansion. And they want to look for alternative solutions to social problems rather than just the traditional route of imprisonment. They're open to other ideas, but they're not leading it. Um, thank you very much for informing me about the NRACCP. I've never heard of that organization before. Uh, the reason why I want to highlight that, because um, in a talk here last year with Brian Stevenson, who many consider our generation Martin Luther King or Mandela, he, a student asked him after Newtown, uh, when little children were gunned down, sp specifically white children were gunned down, what would it take for America's resolve to actually enact gun control? So he responded with an absurd a statement that one of the fastest way to enact gun control is to mobilize black people to become gun owners. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting because the NRA is trying to mobilize, you know, like in this in this recent period at least. I mean, one of the after Heller, the 2008 Supreme Court decision in which, you know, for the first time in the nation's history, the Supreme Court said the Second Amendment gives an individual a right to own a gun. The next case that tested that and expanded it was in Chicago. It was the 2010 McDonald v. City of Chicago. Chicago had a strict handgun ban, and it was overturned in this case, and the plaintiff was African American. 
and the NRA around that, who was living in a high crime neighborhood, his house had been broken into many times, so he wanted to own a gun. And, and around that time, in addition to the conceal and carry law that I talked about, the NRA was trying to mobilize and organize and cultivate black support uh, and, and around the Second Amendment in Chicago around that time. So, so I think that's sort of the old school wisdom, right? Is that like, that's when the, you know, as I mentioned in, in 1968, right? It was the Panthers publicly and boldly displaying gun ownership as a means of black liberation that led to a spate of gun control laws. Um, um, uh, so I think that's where that, that comes from. So to me, it's a little bit, it's a, it's a clever response. It's sort of a throwback more than I think you know, necessarily embedded in where we are now. I, I, I wanted to ask about something that you said at the very beginning of your talk uh, when you mentioned that the gun control movement or its formal actors who are often quoted or what have you are mostly white. Um, and uh, I, I would just be curious, you know, what recommendations or, or what you would say to leaders or members of that movement about sort of what, what it would take uh, for the movement to change or even reinvent itself so that it would be seen as more credible, uh, you know, in black communities, say, would it be, you know, substantially shifting its priorities, focus on police brutality, other forms of partnership, getting behind Black Lives Matter more aggressively, you know, what, what kinds of things would you tell leaders in that movement to actually do to start, you know, broadening its appeal? Well, I actually, I think that I, I didn't say that the gun control movement was predominantly white. I said that the scholarship on gun control focused on the, the kind of inside the beltway um, gun control lobbyists who are predominantly white. I was in some ways trying to suggest that there actually is a kind of black anti-gun movement that is, expresses itself in different ways and doesn't, doesn't lobby for so-called gun control the way other interest groups, like the, you know, the Million Mom March. You know, the Million Mom March was predominantly white, I think, but then it's got many chapters, like its Detroit chapter, you know, was led by black women. I think a lot of its city chapters have devolved and they, in, into something different, and they have broader agendas. So I do think where these, these kind of Washington-based gun control movements become more decentralized and grassroots, I think their agendas do become much more holistic and do take up questions of, of poverty and you know kind of broader questions of violence in society. And they also look at police violence increasingly as well, um, and the armaments that police police um, carry. So um, so in some ways, I was trying to my 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 remarks aren't so much aimed at the white gun control community. It was to I really just wanted to sort of add to our general understanding of who is taking up this issue or focusing on this issue because I think that the, um, you know, when these, when these mass shootings like in Newtown happen, the, the white advocates of gun control get more publicity, certainly the Brady Bill around that time. They're, I think, the public face of it. Whereas I do think that um, um, African American communities have produced a lot of sort of indigenous organizing and leadership around this, but whether it's so sad in Detroit or a kids off the block in Chicago, they have a different iteration and a different kind of um, idiom in which they express this organizing. But it 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 it's it's it flows out of the violence that they're subjected to on a day to day basis in their community. 
So you mentioned that you gave a version of this talk um, to uh, in Chicago, I think, to men who were incarcerated. What was the response? Can you tell us a little bit about that? And um, kind of what in your research really kind of piqued their interest? And how did it challenge what you were researching? They were interested. They wanted to know. I would say most of the, the discussion we had was about um, just the criminal justice system in general. They were very interested in the current uh, Democratic primary for a state's attorney. <laughs> and they really wanted to see her defeated. And so they wanted to talk about that. And they wanted to talk about mass incarceration. They were interested in, in who profits from the illegal sale of guns. Like the illegal, like where, where this, this kind, of, um, kind of underground gun marketplace, how, how, um, how, how they wanted some information on numbers around that, numbers of guns and where those profits go and, 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 and the like. They were interested in the kind of gun industry's role maybe in profiting from gun homicide. Um, and, you know, like, like the NRA blocks a lot of research in, in, in for kind of, you know, the lawful ownership of guns and the consequences of that. Like, they block a lot of, you know, a lot of the kind of research um, around public health outcomes of gun violence, but also just this basic information on the in kind of illegal gun economy. Not much is known. Um, um, because federal agencies do very little research around this because they're intimidated by, the, by I think, the gun lobby. So they had a lot of questions around that, which I couldn't really answer in great <laughs> specificity. But they, they wanted to talk about that, and then I think they just generally wanted to talk about the criminal justice system. Um, so I, th I think we know some things about what doesn't work and what does work in terms of reducing inner city violence. And I heard some threads in your discussion, but wonder um, a bit um, where they sit. So in terms of what doesn't work, even though I'm all for gun control, these things like gun buyback pro programs and attempts to stop flows of guns, most of the research says it doesn't work. Um, it seems like we got too porous a system. It's just, you know, if you try to shut it off here, it flows in from some other place. But we see, you know, massive differences across cities, uh, large differences across neighborhoods. Um, I think particularly of Rob Sampson's work on Chicago and collective efficacy and the fact that in some poor neighborhoods there are very low rates of crime and others are very high. And that seems to point to community structure. Now, of course, the economy, the unavailability of jobs, single female-headed households, perhaps. These are all things that you know, probably are, are not helpful for creating strong community. Um, but it, do, it does seem that you know, at least the mechanism from getting from sort of poverty, destitute situations, highly chaotic inner cities to low levels of violence is to figure out how to build strong communities. You know, I heard some of that in your talk. Yeah, I realize I'm at kind of a public policy school, and and I'm, <laughs> and that's not really what I study. But um, um, yeah, so I think that I'm like a scholar of social movements and and sort of, you know, political thought and kind of protest. And so I've, um, 
I was interested in that question. So that's my framing question for the research, because I'm interested in showing the diversity of, because often African American, you know, kind of these communities suffering a lot of violence are accused of not caring about it or not fighting against it or not resisting it. Um, and so I just, that's false first. And so I just want to give a sense of that kind of breadth and the kind of different, you know, the trajectories of how people come at it. Um, but um, no, I think your question though is very important. And, and I, I, sure, there are a lot of, I think, factors that, that scholars have studied, right, that, that try and they're trying to understand why some communities have higher rates of murder and gun violence than others. Um, you know, Chicago has, Chicago is sort of unique, is, is an unusual city in that half the city is kind of like the new economy and is taking off and, is, and the other half of the city is like Rust Belt and is abandoned and, and, and that's a huge swath of the city. It's almost like geographically half the city. And that's where all this violence is concentrated. And, you know, Chicago also tore down almost all of its public housing and dispersed residents in a very chaotic way. So in the way, in some ways, the way kind of shrinkage and neoliberalism has played out in Chicago, I think, is, has probably worsened um, um, violence in many neighborhoods. Um, uh, but yeah, back to the question of solutions. Um, I think, I mean, that's where I think in some ways looking to the Black Lives Matter movement, if you look at some of their, their proposed solutions, They've gone way beyond just responding to gun violence. The Black Youth Project has a has a, a platform called um, Building Black Futures, and it's all about. I mean, it's essentially all about. Their slogan is defund police and fund black futures, and I think that's a very capacious platform that would not only address the problem of policing, but their whole focus and approach is toward rebuilding these communities that have been really abandoned. So whether it's jobs programs, education, housing, um, it calls for major investments. Um, and, and, and other scholars have shown that it's not just kind of poverty, you know, because as you mentioned, you can have high poverty areas in which there's lower rates of, of homicide. But, but I think that police community relations plays a big role in, in the, the recent book called Ghetto Side by Jill Lovey about Los Angeles, I think, does a good job at show, of showing, uh, I think, that where, where there's a sense in communities that police don't care about them, that police aren't interested in solving crimes, that police are just there to harass you rather than to really help you and really to mitigate the problems in your community, that you won't turn to them to solve disputes or problems. So that this informal process of dispute resolution takes hold. You know, you might call that retaliation. And so that, when you have a culture in which people don't go to police to resolve disputes, and they're doing it on their own, and it's young men, and they have easy access to weaponry, well, that's horrible, right? And so I think not only do you have to address poverty and oppor the opportunity structure and reduce access to weaponry, but you have to make police serve people, and you have to kind of rebuild and design a lot of the fundamental institutions in the community. You were beginning to answer the, I think the earlier question about the, the flow of illegal guns. And I, and I, I wondered about whether some of the um, people in, in, in disadvantaged black communities who are concerned about uh, uh, youth, youth violence in particular, whether they might, just by analogy with um, the war on drugs, just sort of feel like it's not really clear how you could 
do this. So I mean, if, if insofar as we're talking about the flow of illegal guns, this like the flow of illegal narcotics, the, the ability to kind of really get control of that without a really aggressive, you know, penal regime, with, you know, and with the police playing even more invasive and like less privacy and so on, it'll be it's unclear what it would look like. Insofar as you're concerned about. Um, um, amongst amongst um, blacks. I'm just wondering whether you, you find people talking about that as an issue, whether that might make them less enthusiastic or less, just, just as a matter of feasibility or something like that, just feeling like, well, you know, if you could do it, but. Yeah, I think, I think certainly that's true, which is why, I mean, again, people, people might think, you know, it's sort of two-pronged. They might think, well, it's impossible. There are like 200 million guns in circulation in the United States. How do you really kind of get rid of them? So it's kind of unrealistic. So from the unrealistic vantage point, they might think it's a, it's a futile to put um, measure to put the focus on sort of guns, right, the instrument of death. Um, and then there might be some who say, well, no, it, it would be, it would just lead, it would just, again, fuel mass incarceration. Like, it would be, it would be, it just enhances the penal response, like the war on drugs. Which is why, so for the, for the second part, um, which is why, like, I was stressing that rainbow push. And, you know, like, I would say the big efforts against guns coming out of places like Chicago is to restrict the, the is to focus on the industry, right? Um, not on the you know, the individual user and to enhance that person's sentence who has an illegal gun, right? To have a non-penal, non-carceral response. And so they did this major lawsuit after, after, after gun suppliers. That's worked elsewhere. In California, I mean, they actually shut down five gun makers around LA who are making these, these cheap, um, like Saturday Night Special type weapons. Um, other other um, Smith & Wesson, I mean, there's other corporations that have now filled their place. So it's a it's a it's you know who who export lots of weapons to Central America. That's another. A lot of these gun manufacturers not only supply the violence in American cities, but in other countries in this hemisphere where there's as horrific gun violence is in Central America, and those guns all come from American gun manufacturers. A lot of them in California. And um, anyway, so so a big focus then is on you know. They, people don't want it to lead to mass incarceration. They want to kind of, let's go after the suppliers, the makers of the weaponry. And then I think people who feel like, well, it's all just impossible, you know, to go after guns, would put their energy into, you know, into more youth programs. And, you know, they're going to funnel their energy elsewhere to help youth. And I think that's absolutely what we're seeing. I think people who study it would say it's not as unrealistic as people might think, that there, there are lots of examples of states and municipalities who had successful measures in reducing access to guns. Uh, like it's not this universal that sort of floods all states and communities equally, that it really is very segmented and diverse in terms of where guns are and who has them and how they get them. And that there are lots of public policies that can affect the ease of getting guns and the general availability of guns and types of guns. So I think for people who aren't close to that knowledge, it can appear really futile and unrealistic. Um, but for people closer to it, they would argue that there is actually a lot of um, more realistic and pragmatic measures. But um, yeah, um, generally you're right. People don't, people's, um, I mean the advocates, speaking of like, um, not the ordinary person, I mean the, the advocates and the leaders say, let's go after the manufacturers. Um, 
and unfortunately that, that litigation went down to the sea and the NRA figured out ways to block it. I mean, they passed laws across the country saying you can't sue gun manufacturers. They have extraordinary protection from lawsuits. Hi. <clears throat> Thank you once again for coming to, to speak with us. I really enjoyed it. Um, what role has Black Lives Matter played so far in the 2016 presidential primaries, and what do you think will be their role continuing forward in, uh, in national politics? Okay, wow. <laughs> um, it's a complicated question because on the one hand, there is a large segment of the movement for black lives that disavows electoral politics, is not interested in, in getting involved and directly shaping electoral politics and sees their role as fueling organizing in the street, getting youth involved, you know, um, and, and that sort of thing. And if it impacts politicians, well, great, but that's not what their job is and that's not how they see their role um, as directly interfacing with elected officials. They want to be kind of out there on the streets and affecting change, you know, by putting their bodies on the line. You know, the like SNCC, you know, from the, the early 60s. Um, but then there's another wing of the movement that, you know, like D. Ray McKesson, if you will, um, who is now running for mayor of Baltimore, who is uh, more interested in crafting platforms and engaging with elected officials and lobbying different candidates. Um, so I think that you see a spectrum of views on that question within the movement. It's important to remember this is a broad, multifarious national movement. Um, and so I think, though, I think that notwithstanding the desire by the activists on the streets to not get involved in electoral politics, they've still had a big impact. I think that they've had quite an impact on electoral politics. I mean, I see it in Chicago where they forced the resignation of the police chief and where now this state's attorney race is hanging in the balance. And that's all because of this grassroots movement. Um, I think the, the mayor has the lowest popularity ratings you know, ever. Um, I think that, I don't think he'll resign, which is what the call is, but I think when Hillary Clinton campaigns in Illinois, the big question is, will she take a photo with Rahm Emanuel? <laughs> I think people are guessing not. But um, actually, one thing that happened, I think the woman who asked me this question left, but that one question, one re response I got in Stateville in the, in the penitentiary to this, to this whole discussion was, this was the day after the New Hampshire primary, and they were so happy that Bernie Sanders won. It was so interesting. They just saw him as a change agent, as an outsider who's critiquing the system. And I think in some ways, uh, you know, I think that he's, you know, his, he didn't, it's ironic, right? We have a kind of left viable presidential candidate who's very removed from, from kind of the black movement or kind of, you know, he's from this kind of predominantly white state. That's not his formation. That's not his, but now he's, being schooled, if you will, and I think he's got, you know, as the kind of whole debate with Ta-Nehisi Coates on reparation shows, he's got work to do and he's got to move. But I think, I think it'll be interesting to see how quickly he moves and how responsive he is to this pressure. His platform looks great. I mean, you look at his platform and he's absorbed a lot of the Black Lives Matter, I think, critique. I don't think it's his comfort zone to talk about race or to have thought about a lot of these issues a lot. Um, so we'll see where he goes. But I do think that this, this social movement is bubbling up and is affecting the, um, the Democratic primary uh, for sure. And it's certainly affecting, I think, various local campaigns. I haven't looked at it as closely, but I, just the fact that McKesson's running for mayor of Baltimore tells you something about how the, how the organizing, the movement in Baltimore shook up municipal politics. 
it certainly has in Chicago. So we'll see. But there's a lot of debate within the movement about their relationship to this to electoral politics. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. So question in the back. Thank you very much for your discussion. It was wonderful. Um, so we live in a really interesting political moment right now with Justin Scalia, Justice Scalia passing away. And this is like very on the spot. But do you think that in knowing President Obama's um, interest in gun legislation and common sense and sort of thinking about that as a potential litmus test for his SCOTUS nomination, um, I guess, do you think that activists would be more likely to get involved in like the judicial system aspect and like court cases if it did come to pass that we wound up with a more liberal Supreme Court? What do you mean activists get involved in the judicial system? Well, you were sort of talking about how um, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like um, they're maybe as necessarily involved as the national movement, I guess. Would you, I mean, I feel like you talked a little bit about local grassroots movements. Oh, uh, well, when you say thinking, activists, do you mean like the left? Um, I don't think the uh, left Well, I don't activists. really consider like Black Lives Matter to be like the left. I'm thinking more like African-American activists that are working in Campaign Zero and Black Lives Matters. I think some in that community I would, I would call the left. I think there's an ideological spectrum. And I think that this, you have to remember there's one, one stream of influence on, on this cohort has been the prison abolition movement, has been critical resistance. You know, so, I mean, that's a poll that, you know, like, and their mantra is don't call the police. I mean, that's a particular poll in the movement. You know, the prison abolitionists who, um, are very wary of, of some of these criminal justice reform measures that they fear are going to go backwards and um, uh, redound to the detriment of the community. Um, I think that, um, so I'm not sure when you, so, but I do think that there is a lot of engagement in the mainstream judicial system where there are openings. I mean, uh, you know, in, in whether there's litigation around prisons. I mean, there was a big push to end, a, end a, uh, the Tams prison that had those, you know, had like the shoe, had that, mat, that um, I'm forgetting what the name of that kind of incarceration is. It's the most extreme, where you're like in a shoebox for supermax, supermax. So that was a very kind of mainstream uh, uh, through the courts and legislate, legislative body movement, right, to close a prison. Um, so I do think you see a lot of examples of, of people using the legislatures and the courts to achieve these ends. Um, and I think where people see openings, they'll, they'll push. But there, there won't always be, groups won't always operate in one mind or in one politics. But I think there is a lot of that that's already happening. Okay, so I think we are going to wrap up. Thank you all for coming out. And if we can give just Martha Biondi another round of applause. Um,